place it come to play. So we're settling quite well into our second day of session. Things have got a much more settled feel about it as they usually do as we go further into this practice. What I wanted to talk about today, uh, to give it a title, is the Tao of Zen. Or to give it a subtitle, The Way of the Happy Idiot. A um, bit of background, some of you may know this fairly well, but Zen is actually the, um, the uh, child, so you could say, or the offspring of Buddhism and Taoism. It's not just purely Buddhist. And um, when Buddhism came to each country, uh, unlike other, other religions like Christianity or Islam, it wasn't trying to so much replace the native religion as a pagan religion or as being wrong, but rather had more of an integrating uh, um, way of, of relating to what was already there, with the wisdom that was already there. So in Tibetan culture, um, Buddhism integrated with the, with the native Bon religion, and in China with um, Taoism, in um, Japan with Shinto, and some people would argue that not so much the religion that's integrating with most in the West, but the, the way of the inner life that it's integrating with the West is, is mainly psychotherapy. And that's, the, that's kind of like the equivalent of the integration that's happened <coughs> in our country. And uh, some of the concepts of Taoism, as, as you know, is yin and yang. And if my, I may use those concepts in a way to um, fill this out a bit, <clears throat> with Buddhism and Taoism being the, the co-parents of Zen, um, it's like the Buddhism is more like the yang part, Do you know, it's the sort of more dominant masculine part, and the Taoism is more the yin part, you don't really hear about. Um, but my intention in this talk is to actually bring out the importance of, of the, um, the yin part of it and, uh, and emphasise the influence that Taoism has in the practice that we do today. And it's one of the principles of Taoism, be aware of the masculine but keep to the feminine, whether you're male or female in gender, be aware of the masculine but keep to the feminine. And uh, there's a lot of, lot of good influences of Taoism in Zen because <clears throat> Buddhism can tend to be rather transcendental or lofty at times. And one of the gifts that the Chinese people brought to this practice uh, with all its lists of, you know, um, you know, the four this and the six this and the seven this and so on, is the Chinese brought a really great sense of practicality and down-to-earth um, flavour to it. They really grounded the practice. And Taoism is very grounded and very fluid. Now, one of the inspirations that got me back to looking at the Taoist aspects or the Taoist roots of Zen 
There's a book which was written many years ago, I think it was very popular in the 1980s, a book written by a man called Benjamin Hoff, and it was called um, The Tao uh, of Pooh, and then the, the sequel to it was The Day of Piglet. And uh, Benjamin Hoff being steeped in Taoism, but also having um, a great love of English literature, drew on these children's stories of Winnie the Pooh um, to illustrate the, the principles of Taoism. And um, it's, a, it's a book that I'd highly recommend you read outside of session sometime. It's very instructive, very, very informative in many different ways. And let me introduce you to the, um, the main characters of the story of Winnie the Pooh. Um, one, there's Rabbit, and then there's Owl, and there's Eeyore, and there's Pooh, and there's Piglet, and there's various other characters. But as Benjamin Hoff points out, each of the characters deals with knowledge in very different ways, and it highlights the virtue of Pooh. Yeah. In the books, Rabbit um, is a kind of a Mr. Fixit. You know, he's always busy, 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 like a micromanager looking for all the, the clever kind of um, you know, solutions to things all the time. It's very clever. Um, so he uses knowledge in that way. And Al is very wise, so what, Al accumulates knowledge in order to look wise and to be wise. You know, and to say wise things. And um, Eeyore, and this has became known as the Eeyore effect, is that Eeyore accumulates knowledge in order to complain. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And he's sort of very sceptical and down and, and um, cynical in his approach. And whereas um, Pooh is known in the story as an animal with no brain, or little brain, and yet Pooh seems to be the one with all their adventures and so on that happened in the book, accidentally comes up with all the right solutions all the time mm -hmm. in this intuitive kind of way. He has no brain, mm -hmm. but obviously great wisdom coming through. So he's the Taoist ideal. He's the happy idiot. Mm -hmm. And as I was saying in the... Um, I say this frequently in, in Sydney, and particularly last session, our, 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 our goal, if I can put it that way, or our aspiration to do Zen practice and to do session is not to become clever Buddhists, it's to become happy idiots. Mm -hmm. That's what we're looking at here. Knowledge isn't going to get you anywhere. You'll read it in, in many of the Zen texts. I think there's one of our readings on, um, on, on uh, faith in mind that makes that point. It's not about accumulating knowledge. You can read books and books and books on, on Buddhism and on Zen and you know, on the analysing different points of view. That's not going to transform your life. Not accumulating knowledge is going to transform your life. It's letting go of egocentric knowledge is going to shift your life and make a difference. So they're the characters that we have. And um, 
one of the uh, one of the stories that Benjamin Hoff uh, brings to light in the beginning of the book is a way of trying to look at Taoism within the context of Chinese religion. Um, there is a famous painting called The Vinegar Tasters. And in The Vinegar Tasters, there's the three main leaders of religions in China. There's Confucius, and there's the Buddha, and there's Lao Tzu. And they're all sitting around um, a vinegar jar, and they've got their fingers in it, tasting it. <coughs> and Confucius is tasting it, and he's got a very sort of bitter, you know, sour look on his face. It doesn't taste very nice. And that symbolises in this picture that Confucianism is kind of based on the idea that um, life was happy and grand in, in years go, that went by and that people have to um, uh, abide by very strong rules and social structures on how they should behave and according to their status and so on in society. So it's a very, in a sense, it's, it's got wisdom in it, but it's a very sort of um, stylized, contrived way of, of um, helping people to live a good life. And Buddha's tasting the vinegar, and Buddha's got a, a bitter taste on his face as well. The sort of approach being that, you know, that Buddhism, at least in some of the some of the more traditional forms of it. It's about transcending life, you know, that life is suffering, it's all suffering, and we have to get up, transcend or get away from the suffering somehow. Because that's not the Zen approach to it. Um, and uh, Zen approach is like the Taoist approach. So with the vinegar tasters, Lao Tzu is tasting the vinegar, and he's the only one with a smile on his face, he's smiling. Because the vinegar to him is sweet, not honey sweet. But basically the metaphor of it, to a Taoist life is sweet. You get rid of all the ideas about it and it's basically sweet. The Italians have a famous saying which I like, which is very relevant to Zen practice too. It's dolce far niente, the sweetness of doing nothing. The sweetness of doing nothing. And in a sense, that, that's what our experience of session can be. The sweetness of doing nothing, to taste that sweetness. And so, the integration of Buddhism with Zen, the Taoism, uh, Buddhism with Taoism, is that the Taoism really brings it down to life. It's this life which is important. Not some afterlife, not transcending it, whatever. This life as it is, if we approach it in a certain way, is sweet and fulfilling and joyful. <clears throat> One of the uh, concepts of Taoism is the expression um, Wu Wei. And Wu Wei translates like something as effortless effort. And one of the most beautiful metaphors in Taoism is, the, is water, and the course of water like streams, rivers. And, um, and the way of water is that if it comes up against a resistance, like if water has to find its way down a hill, you know, the stream finding the river, 
um, it comes to obstacles, it just goes around them. It's actually very powerful, but doesn't appear powerful. It doesn't try to go straight through things, you know, um, combat things, you know, use force. It just very subtly goes around, you know, and it finds its way down to where it has to go in an effortless kind of way. And it's a great metaphor for how to live our life. And it's a great metaphor for how to do meditation as well. Because what the contrast is to Wu Wei, which so many people in our, in our culture get caught up in, and then they apply that, they, they apply these same mindsets to work and to exercise and even play. People work at work, they work hard at exercise and they work hard at play. And we can so often bring that same mindset to meditation as well. We're working hard at meditation. Mm -hmm. But what happens with that frame of mind in contrast to the Wu Wei principle, it, that, that kind of mind that works so hard at everything is usually meddlesome. We don't want the meddlesome mind, the meddlesome intellect, interfering with the process of, of meditation, trying to do it better, you know, got to get there, try and get better, got to become enlightened, push, push, push. Mm -hmm. that, that approach will get in, in the way of actually um, becoming free. The other aspect of that delusional or, or, or unskillful effort in meditation um, it's not just to be meddlesome, but also to be combative. So it's like you're setting your mind up as the, you know, thoughts up as the opposition. And I'm going to try my hardest to keep the thoughts out at all costs and they're the enemy. Mm -hmm. That's not useful either. And also the nature of the, the, the meddlesome mind too is that it's egocentric. It's trying to look good. It's like, like trying to be a good meditator. What's that? What's a bad meditator? What's that? It's just the meddlesome mind making, making judgments about our experience. So it's very important that we're trying to cultivate a sense of wu-wei, you know, effortless effort in the way that we're actually doing this practice and so that it flows on into our everyday life. Obviously, the point of meditation is not to just sit here daydreaming, of course. Um, that would be the opposite kind of effect. But what happens is a shift in the way that you meditate when you put this principle into practice. And after all, our consciousness is a stream of consciousness. And it's about entering that stream and going along with the stream. Now, a, a very cliched saying, um, extremely cliched saying, which is used in a sort of a, a mocking kind of way, is that saying to go with the flow, mm -hmm. like go with the flow man. Mm -hmm. But it really is a great saying. It really, it really does sum up the spirit of Taoism and the, and the spirit of Zen practice, is to enter the stream of experience. You know, and, and to flow with it without resistance. Become like water. Mm -hmm. Actually a very great phrase. 
and we should be reminded of that in our everyday life. When we are trying too hard to get somewhere, it's like um, it's like a radio that we've got, like a two-way radio, and we've always got the transmitter button down. You know, talking into it. You know, trying to trying to get a message across. It's like trying to intentionally act on something all the time to get a result. Um, whereas what shifts when this wu-wei principle turns around, it's like you, you, you don't keep your finger on the transmitter button, you go under the receptor button, you receive. Mm-hmm. It's learning how to receive. Same thing in, in Christianity, you get, you get Christians who pray every day to God, please God make me a better person, do you make me a good person? But they've got their finger on the transmitter button all the time, praying to God. Whereas in, in, in Christianity there is, there is the, the, the receiving of grace. Mm-hmm. Grace you just receive from God. Same thing. Instead of your finger on the transmitter button, on, on, the re, on the other button, the receiving button. So the way that you can... One of the definitions, secular definitions of mindfulness is intentionally bringing your your attention to the present moment or the flow of the present moment, which is fine. It emphasises one side of it. But if I could modify the language a little bit to to give the flavour of a Taoist approach to it, it's so much intentionally bringing your consciousness to something, but rather allowing, allowing the present moment to take you along in its flow. Allowing the present moment of bird sounds, you know, and the wind in the trees, and the distant sounds of traffic and trains and things, just let them take you along in the flow. Of course it's not daydreaming, it's turning up to be present and it's allowing it to take you along. Um, it's, a, it's a much more relaxing ride. Mm-hmm. It's a much more fulfilling ride when that shift takes place. People often, nearly everyone, I think, starts off in practice probably trying too hard. And it comes from a sincere intention. It's often (coughs) overshooting the mark all the time. It's like you're in the present moment and you keep on doubting whether you're in the present moment and you try to be in the present moment even more. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you just allow it to come to you, then it's a different experience. I know there's um, a famous book by um, Suzuki Roshi called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and the term beginner's mind has become very popular as a way of um, describing the mind of someone who uh, has no preconceptions or fixed ideas. But I actually would like to turn that concept on its head because people who are relatively new to meditation practice. Um, usually, and the research will bear this out too, is that their mind is full of expectations. And lately I've been drawing a, con- a, a contrast between, or asking the question, what is the difference between a gambler and a meditator? 
because the gambler is right there in the present moment. They're really, really focused in the moment on those wheels spinning around and where the ball's going to land and everything. They're right there with it. But what's the difference? The gambler's mind is full of expectations about what's going to happen in the future. Is the ball going to roll out in the right place so I win $1,000 or I lose $1,000? Yes, they're right there in the moment, but in the back of their mind, they're full of expectation. And most people start off meditation with a gambler's mind. You know, I'll meditate and then I'll become happier. My depression will go away, my anxiety will go away. I'll become enlightened and then I'll be free from suffering. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an expectation of what will happen. And what actually happens as you mature through Zen practice, um, it's not necessarily that you become super great at concentrating. Mm-hmm. It's more that the expectations drop away. Mm-hmm. That's what occurs. And they, they bear this out in research. To do with people who are new to meditation and people who've meditated a long time. People have been meditating a long time, the expectations drop away. And that is the maturing process. It's not just a developing a, a mind muscle of being present. It's much more subtle than that. And if you what happens in a lifetime of doing Zen practice? is you meet all of your expectations, you see them clearly, and you see how all of those expectations that you place on yourself or on other people or on life, um, you, be, you, you, be, you become disillusioned by them in a healthy kind of way. You are under an illusion and you no longer have that illusion anymore. So your expectations, as your expectations drop away, you become more comfortable in yourself more relaxed. That's, that's the more subtle process of meditation that's occurring, not just developing a mental muscle of mindfulness. So what, what goes on in that process is, is very interesting. And what comes along also with dropping expectations is you become more humble. Mm-hmm. And as you become more humble, paradoxically, you become more confident. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of a lot of pseudo-confidence is boosted up by pseudo-optimism, pseudo-positive thinking, comparisons with others. When all of that drops away, you're just grounded. You're just living in, in, in the truth of present moment experience. You mirror it clearly without distortion. And with that comes a great groundedness and great confidence that arises out of that. A little quote here from Winnie the Pooh about water, which um, says something similar to this as an echo of it. It's talking about a, a stream. By the time it came to the edge of the forest, the stream had grown up so that it was almost a river. And being grown up, it did not run and jump and sparkle along as it did when it was younger, but moved more slowly, for it knew now where it was going, and it said to itself, there's no hurry, we'll get there someday.
One of the things I've also been emphasising of late um, is the importance of adaptability in life and that Zen training, if it's going in the right direction, leads us to being more adaptable to our circumstances. I don't know whether I've mentioned this story to you before, but it's a, it's a good story that illustrates this, and it's the title of a book called um, Play the Ball Where the Monkey Drops It. Have I mentioned it before? Good. <laughs> Play the ball where the monkey drops it. Where it comes from is a story of when the British Raj were in India colonising India. They brought, brought their, their games with them, so they brought the game of golf. And so they carved out a, a golf course in a, in a jungle and would play golf in their leisure time. However, the problem was the jungle was full of monkeys. And as they hit their ball, you know, to go in the hole, the monkeys were fascinated with the golf balls. And the monkeys would come down out of the trees and pick up the golf balls and look at them and just throw them anywhere, you know. And, um, and the golfers became really frustrated with the monkeys, you know, tried to solve the problem. So they, they tried to catch the monkeys and take them away to another area. Um, but the monkeys came back and then they tried to put fences up to keep the monkeys out, but the monkeys kept climbing over the fences. No, no matter what they did, when they played, the monkeys would throw the balls somewhere else. So they came up with a very novel solution. Play the ball where the monkey drops it. Right? And that's become a great metaphor for how we can respond to our life. And if we're, if we're really practicing, if we're really putting Zen into practice in our everyday life, we play the ball where the monkey drops it. How many times in the last week has that happened to you? You have a certain expectation, to go back to expectation, a certain expectation of how life will proceed, and then something just comes out of left field. How are you going to respond? That's where your Zen training actually comes in, right at that moment. Dealing with the unexpected. Are you going to stick to your expectation and get frustrated? And annoyed that life shouldn't be like that? Or do you go, ah, ah, meeting the unexpected. How interesting. How do I adapt to this? in a non-rigid way, in a fluid way, like water. Robert Aiken, who was one of my primary Zen teachers, said that um, a Zen life is a life of responding appropriately to each moment. Now, maybe that's too idealistic, maybe we never really respond appropriately to each moment, we make mistakes. Um, but that's, that's the application of Zen in everyday life. Like that, where there's egocentricity and meddling mind and combative mind and so on, there's a rigidity in our personality. Mm-hmm. And as we practice, that rigidity just melts away, mm-hmm. becomes fluid. That's why you can become more adaptable. There's a koan about the um, well known. Zen teacher Joshu, and in one of the commentaries in the koan, it says, Joshu has no bone in his tongue. It's 
metaphor of that no rigidity. He, 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 can, he, he, he can respond in dialogue to what everyone, anyone says to him and meet them as they are because he's, got, he's totally flexible, he's not stuck anywhere. You've got a bone in your tongue, you're rigid. So it's breaking, Zen practice, when we break down that ego structure, we're breaking down our rigidity, we're becoming more fluid. And then we've, we've got the skill to just adapt to each changing circumstance in life as we come to it rather than opposing it. My teacher, Joko, used another metaphor that we're all kind of, when we're recording these ego structures of rigidity, that we're all like ice blocks. And ice blocks kind of clash up against one another you know, and uh, in our relationships. And the, the process of sin is melting the frozen block of emotion thought. That's the nature of it. We go from rigidity to fluidity. It's the nature of this practice all the time. Mm 